0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel.
1: The reading this evening is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. You have revealed yourself to us from heaven in your Son, in your word to us. So we do pray now that you would bless this feast as we now uh, scoot our chairs up to this banquet table, that you would feed us, that you would nourish us by your word, by your presence with us. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Uh, this week is a torch week, so if you are a fourth through sixth grader, Aaron's coming up. Uh, you guys want to, yeah, and Stephen, if you guys want to follow Aaron and Stephen out and talk about the last couple of weeks of First John together, you can do that. Um, last night, uh, if I haven't met you, by the way, my name is Nathan, I'd love to meet you after the service. Come say hi. We'd love to get to know you and hear of how you came to Albuquerque or how you came to Christchurch or Uh, if you've got questions about us or about this gospel we'd love to answer those things well last night uh, one of my childhood friends uh, a friend that went all the way through high school he texted me out of nowhere i was with a gathering of several of you and in that meeting i got a text from him and he he said hey nathan what's better than heaven and i didn't have time to reply but i texted him back when i got home i was like "Uh, i don't know andrew what's better than heaven and uh this morning uh he replied and said that when we were seventh graders, I texted, or I told his now wife, Heather, uh, at a seventh grade youth night, uh, I said, uh, you know, or I asked her, what's better than heaven? And she said, nothing. And I was like, that's right. Uh, But nothing is better than heaven. And a ham sandwich is better than nothing. So a ham sandwich is better than heaven. I have no memory of that at all, Uh, but he told me that uh, she said to this day uh, that whenever she hears anyone say, what's well, better than nothing, she thinks, ham hey, sandwich, and that's better than heaven. But it's not. Uh, listen, kids are weird. I was weird as a seventh grader, apparently. Uh, and many of the same like playground sayings and phrases uh, that I heard and said as a kid often come through my kitchen or our living room. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, it was around Christmas time, and one of my kids came home from school singing, jingle bells, Batman smells. No. I was like, Robin laid an egg. That is amazing. I haven't heard that in like 25 years, uh, but it's still true. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, all these weird phrases. Uh, like, my, my kids don't say it often, but I know you are. But what am I? That's very strange. Uh, also, some phrases that attempt to make light of deep realities. Like, if you love Star Wars so much, why don't you marry it? Uh, like two weeks ago, when we were thinking through First John. Kyle observed that we say that I love my wife and I love bacon. It's the same word. The English word love is so limited uh, that we think that we should marry Star Wars, whatever that means. Kids, even adults, wrongly think of marital love as the highest love. Another phrase that grasps after truth but misses it is you are what you eat. You eat pizza, so you're pizza. That doesn't even make sense. But hearkening back to a theme that we've thought about several times together here on Sundays is if you are not what you eat, you are what you love. The things that you find yourself loving and enjoying are perhaps the greatest indicator of who you actually are. We are certainly more than our appetites, but the thing or things that we orient our lives to actually shape and mold us. The ordering of our desires, the ordering of our loves, the disordering of our desires and loves make us into who we are. Well, 1 John is a letter about love. It certainly is. But it is also a letter, first and foremost, about God. It has tons of implications for us in how we are to love him and how we are to love one another. But remember from chapter 1 that this is the message that we have heard from the very beginning, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Well, here in John, 1 John chapter 4, John adds to what he said about God being light. But in chapter 4 verse 8, he also says, God is love. So tonight we're going to think through the rest of chapter four under three headings together. The first just being a title heading and a big umbrella heading of God is love. And then under that, that God shows his love by his son. And then thirdly, God shows his love by his spirit. So I think this is a decent way of framing this chapter, but chapter four, maybe more than anywhere in this letter, is, again, a big, tangled, jumbled mess of Christmas lights. First John, unlike... Romans or some of Paul's letters is not a neat string from point to point, but a jumbled mess of lights, and you have probably already, when you heard John Mark reading from 1 John 4, you might have thought, wait, I've heard that like many times in this letter, and you have, and you will again. John is like a painter who works a little bit over here, and then a little bit over there, and then you step back and observe the whole painting and say, ah, that's a masterpiece, and that's 1 John. But here we go. God is love. He says in verse 7 beloved let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and who and who knows God and anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So remember John very rarely gives commands in his gospel account and in this letter so when he does we really need to pay attention. Our English translation kind of dampens the forcefulness but verse 7 is a command let us love one another. And in fact, this entire chapter is bookended in verse 7, let us love one another, and then down in verse 21, in this commandment we have heard from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is bookended by our horizontal love for one another. But why? Why love? Why should we love one another? Why should we love God? Why not isolate ourselves entirely from one another? Why not isolate into groups or clans or cultures, and just do what every other organism in the universe does, just accumulate things to survive, if threatened, protect, if attacked, retaliate? Why not? This is exactly what most mammals do. It's exactly what fish and birds and even viruses do. It's just biology. Why don't we, why should we not respond in the same way? We humans are to love one another because we are created in God's image. We are created not only to subrule the earth under God's authority in a way that platypi or viruses are not, but we are also created to represent certain aspects and character and the character traits of God, of his being. And what does John say? He says, let us love one another from, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And those three words, those three words may be three of the most important words in the whole Bible. God is love. These are hugely famous words that I think are still very well known in our culture. I didn't like trial run this, but I think uh, if we were to leave tonight and just walk around Albuquerque— walk downtown, walk around campus, walk around in your neighborhood and just ask people, say, I'd like you you to fill in the blank. God is, maybe not, but I think a lot of people would still fill in the blank with 1 John 4, 8. God is love. God is love. But how do we know this? Why do we know this? We'll think more closely about this in our second and third points, but God being love is not intuitive. We think it is, but it should not be. I don't think we could just observe nature and come to the conclusion that God is love. Like, all you would need to do is just take a camping chair down to the bosque, just sit by the river, and once you, like, once the animals and the insects and things, like, got accustomed to you, after about an hour, once you got past the serene, uh, it would become a brutal place. Nature is a brutal place of suffering and death. Like, that is all planet Earth is. Like, planet Earth, watching planet Earth or any other shows like that is amazingly awesome. You can see the grandeur and the design and the creativity of God. Watching planet Earth is sometimes terrible. I made the mistake once of uh, with my kids watching a a show on Disney Plus called Hostile Planet. Don't watch that with small children. It will, like, haunt your dreams. Uh, And this is just the way that the Earth is. Brutal, hostile, suffering, and death. Nature has about a million and one ways that it is right now trying to kill you. So, while cultures throughout the millennia all over the world believe in gods or goddesses, most of those gods or goddesses throughout history have not been gods of love. They would not have uh, been described as or worshiped as loving. They are often brutal, violent, seemingly unjust. And even the rest of those who perhaps are benevolent, maybe aren't loving, or be described as love. But the three words, these three words of the Bible, God is love, are incredibly important, but they may not be saying what we think they they might be saying. John does not say, God does love, or God does loving things, or even God always does loving things. He says, God is love. It's a huge distinction to make. Love is so wrapped up in the very nature, the very being, the very essence of who God is that we can say that God is love. God does loving things because these actions naturally flow from his character. Another way of saying it is that anything that God has ever done is because of love, is because he is love. Love. God is love. Elsewhere in Scripture, God is described with other descriptors or categories. He is just. He is righteous. He is holy. He is, even like we profess together tonight from Psalm 145, He is patient, slow to angry. He is merciful. The, lot, the author of the letter to the Hebrews says that God is a consuming fire. But all of these other descriptors flow from His perfect and pure and eternal nature. Love. And so we must not say that Wrath is one of God's eternal perfections. Think about that for a second. God is not, hang in there with me for a second, God is not wrathful by nature. To quote quote one theologian, wrath is the way disobedient sinners experience God's justice. Other questions to consider, with whom was God angry before the fall? Or will God be eternally wrathful in the new heavens and new earth? No. So many reformers spoke of God's wrath or punishment against sinners as his alien work. Alien meaning outside. Or even others calling wrath his unnatural work. Wrath is willed on that which is not natural. And what is not natural to creation? Sin. We are the cause of evil and sin. God did not create sin. He hates it. He loves. God is love. And so even justice, even wrath, flow from his essence of love. And so if we, as humans, are created in God's image, and then we, as Christians, have been brought into the very love of God then to not love is to not understand the new reality in which we live. The old reality was that of just perhaps evolutionary survival and advancement or something. Just out to get mine. Of living life as a barely filled glass and then using others to just fill me. Always taking But having been filled by the love of God, now we are able to use others as a means to fill them. Other people exist for me to use as a a recipient of God's love through me. Not giving, but taking. Or not taking, but giving. Giving away the love of God. Not using people to take. A couple of weeks ago, I started rereading my favorite novel with a couple of you brothers. Uh the book, The Brothers Karamazov. And then the early chapters, there's this widow. There's this widow who brings her sick daughter to a Russian priest for healing. And the author, Dostoevsky, he's a master. He makes it clear that everything that this lady, this widow wants is just sinful. It's just selfish. Even her desire to have her sick daughter healed is just what she can get out of it, her selfishness. She says this, and she doesn't, she doesn't say this um, understanding what she's saying. She's saying that this is not a problem, but she says this, and see if this isn't a dagger into your soul. She says, the more I love humanity in general, the less I love it in particular. In my dreams, I often make plans for the service of humanity, yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together. As soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs me and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the very best of men, One because he's too long over his dinner, another because he has a cold and keeps on blowing his nose. I become hostile to people the moment they come close to me. But it has always happened to me that the more I hate men individually, the more I love humanity. She is confusing a love for humanity generally, but then when people are actually up in front and personal, she no longer loves humanity because loving humanity means loving a person. And so maybe you'd think of like a John Lennon type of guy who's writing songs like All You Need Is Love at the simultaneous moment, moment that he is a miserable and impossible human to be around. But before you turn the focus outward and just saying, yeah, isn't it crazy how people are like that? Hold up the mirror. How regularly do we sing about the love of God? How regularly do we sing about the love of God for me? and then move about the world miserably and impossibly. This is not the love of God. It is not the nature of God. Only loving to be loved, using other people to get more happiness. Only loving theoretically or generally, but then when push comes to shove, unwilling to love practically and specifically. The gospel to mankind was not general, but was very practical, and it found its mark in his people. So we know that this kind of general love is not true of God because of now our second point. God is love, firstly, but secondly, God shows his love by the Son. Verse 9, John says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So God sent his only Son into the world. This has John 3.16 echoes all over it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now, We've already been swimming around in some deeply theological waters here in 1 John 4, but can we think about God's triuneness for a minute? That God is Trinity. Uh, theology exam time, everybody. Everybody got your number two pencils. Are we Christians monotheists or polytheists? Do we worship one God or many gods? I think. If you actually had your Scantrons and number two pencils out, uh, most of you would answer that with a orthodox understanding of the Christian faith, that we are monotheists, we worship one God, but I think practically we kind of function and believe as if we do worship three gods, three different gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the creeds that we have professed over the past two weeks together uh, make clear that the the clear teaching of the Bible is that we worship one God in three persons— God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We are not tritheists, in which there are three separate members of this, like, divine council or something that happen to get along with each other and are united in their aims or something like that. Nor is our God a composite God, that what we have is like the finished product of three divine beings. Now, we profess last week from the Athanasian Creed that we worship one God in Trinity, and the Trinity and unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. Another way of saying that is not blending the persons so that the persons of the triune God become one, nor dividing the divine essence of who God is. So while Jesus is just as much eternal as the Father, the Father did not create the Son. We can say that the Father is the source, of the Son. The Son sharing in glory and divinity, co-equal in majesty, emanating perhaps even from the Father. The theological category for this is, hang in there with me, this is really important stuff. This is deep but heavy and good stuff. The theological category for this that uh, theologians have thought through for millennia is that of eternal generation, that Jesus, the Son, eternally generates from, emanates from God the Father, but not created, So even in 1 John 4, God the Father sends the Son, but it's never the other way around. The Son never sends the Father. And so we thought about some of these categories a few years back in John 5 when Jesus said whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus is not the Father's instrument on earth. Jesus is not a walking, talking magic wand that God uses to heal and to bring life. Jesus' choices and his divine will are identical to that of the Father because they are the persons of the same triune God. One of, Christian's history, one of Christian history's clearest and most helpful Trinitarian theologians is John Owen from the 1600s, and he has helpfully said that if it were possible that three men might see by the same eye, that's weird, if Kyle and James and I all had the same eye, The act of seeing would be but one, and it would be equally the act of all three. Kyle and James and I can't do that. But the will, the vision, the eye of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all the same. This is our triune God. And yet, even though when we read the word God or the Lord in the Old Testament, it's good and wise to read those titles through Christian categories of God, the triune God, here in 1 John 4, context shows us that when, God, when John says God, he means God the Father. God took the initiative. The Father sent. He sent the best, God did. God sent his only Son. He did it for undeserving enemies. God sent his only Son into the world. And remember what we thought about what the world means from 1 John 2, a territory, a realm of opposition against God. That is who the Father sends the Son into his enemies. He provided what we needed to be the propitiation for our sins, an atoning sacrifice on our behalf. He did not send Jesus merely to teach or to live before us as an example, but to die for us. The cross of Christ is a time and space window into the eternity past, always existing love of God. The love of God for and through himself and three persons that exploded into the creation of the universe to be shared in, and the love of God for sinners to be saved, to be accepted, to be welcomed into flourishing life. This is deep Trinitarian theology here. So why spend any time thinking about these categories? Is the last five or ten minutes nothing more than just like an impractical seminary lecture or something? No, no, the triune God is perhaps the greatest mystery in the entire universe and at the same time the greatest praise-inducing, life-changing reality in the universe. We have eternity to keep swimming deeper and deeper into God's triuneness. That the triune God has been loving himself for eternity and it is into that very love that he invites us to commune with. To live in, to swim in for eternity. And so John is saying, love one another in part by thinking on the love of God for you in Christ. The way that we can love one another is by dwelling on, thinking on the love of God for you in Christ. Don't be like the unforgiving servant who was forgiven a great debt and then held a lesser debtor to his debt without mercy. Our love is not partial to those like us, those of the same age or the same pay grade or the same style or the same skin color or the same schooling or the same politics or the same music choices, and on and on and on. The people in this room must not love like the world does. And the world only loves when it brings more, when others become a vehicle to my happiness rather than an obstacle. We must love one another even when we are obstacles for one another's happiness. Just as God the Father shows his love for us in the Son, God the Father shows his love for the world through the people of his Son. No one has ever seen God, John says in verse 12. But in God's people, God is known. This no one has ever seen God, God language is an identical phrase to what John has said in the prologue of his gospel account where in John chapter 1 verse 18 John says that no one has ever seen God but he has revealed himself to us in the son. Well here in verse John 4 the unseen God reveals himself not in the son but if and when his people love each other. The most persuasive apologetic, the most persuasive defense for the reality and the truthfulness of Christianity is how we love one another. Not philosophic arguments, not scientific arguments, not historical arguments, but love. Emotions, yes, dispositions for one another that are not cynical, that are not grudge-bearing, that are not suspicious, but even more than that, in actions. Being sacrificial with our time, with our money, with our comfort, pouring out because we have been filled. And praise God, this is so true of you. We are just so encouraged week by week by week by week to hear story after story after story of how you are caring for one another, how you are caring for others. Keep it up, Christ Church, keep it up. So that many more in our city and beyond might come to be invited to experience the love of God in Christ. But God's love isn't just manifested, isn't made clear, isn't just shown in His Son. Thirdly, God shows His love by His Spirit. And I'd add to that for our assurance. So God shows His love by His Spirit, by the Spirit. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We know that we are his because he has given us his spirit. The work of our salvation is a triune act. In fact, every act of our God is triune. Creation, redemption, revelation, all of it. What the Father purposes and the Son accomplishes, then the Spirit applies or seals in our life, and that is true of our salvation. God the Father is not stingy with his love, and he is not stingy in his sending of the Spirit. And it is now the rest of the Christian life to now grow in, to walk more closely in the life of the Spirit. Just as humans were created from the very beginning to walk intimately with God, he has now made himself available and accessible. So as one commentator puts it, it is impossible for one to have 60% of the Spirit, but not at all impossible that he has less than all of us. He has poured out God the Spirit in abundant and full generosity. Not just a little bit, but all. Read Acts 2 if you, wanna, if you don't believe it. And it is now the work of the Spirit in our lives to begin to reshape, reform, reorient, reorder our loves from death to life, from darkness to light, refocusing our vision, our hopes, our demands, our loves, that we might walk by Him, that we might love and know God. But back to the second half of chapter 4, verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This does not mean that if we love one another, then God will abide in us and perfect his love in us, but that if we love one another, it is because God abides in us and he is perfecting his love in us. We can see this from verse 16, which reads, God is love and whoever abides in his love abides in God and God abides in him. And if we still have this out of order in our minds, listen to that which God, or what John puts first in his clearest verse, verse 19, we love because God first loved us. When we love like he does, we know that we are from him, that we have him. We can't explain the things that we do or the feelings we feel except for his gracious work in our lives. Love is bound up with faith. Assurance comes from love and love comes from faith. And so Christian love produces the fruit of confidence before God, of assurance before God. Now, some people might have confidence before God when they think of judgment because judgment perhaps isn't a very serious idea in their mind. Like, it's like someone who might've heard, hey, hey, the final is super easy. And so they didn't really study for the final come to find out it was much harder than they thought. They aren't relaxing because they're ready. They're relaxing because they're deceived. But judgment is very serious. Hell is used 12 times in the New Testament, and 11 of them are by Jesus himself. John speaks of the day of judgment here. Jesus says in Matthew 5, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Or again in Matthew 10, these are the words of Jesus. Remember we thought about last week, the red letter words of Jesus, where Jesus says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? and not one of them will fall to the ground and apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before the father in heaven. These are serious warnings to us. For the past few years, We've read about or even experienced perhaps an invasive data collection in our lives. I think it first came out maybe before social media companies like how involved the NSA or other government agencies were in collecting data about its citizens. And then certainly now we know of these realities in our own smartphones or our computers. But in one article from several years ago a guy wrote this, he says, it's no big deal that the government can know all that stuff about us. The reason we're upset is because we're afraid of being caught personally. That we could be accused of doing this or that, and that one day our phone records could be called up is a scary thought. I think there's much, much more to the story in that, but there's something to it. Even knowing what my social media feeds know about me All of the sudden, those who aren't necessarily afraid of the judgment of God are afraid of the judgment of man should their lives suddenly one day become completely exposed. Even just your phone records, your internet habits, much less your your thoughts, what if just your internet search history were exposed before humanity? The thought of that, I think, would probably fill most of us with dread. Now, every thought that you've ever had in your life? And yet, John says in verse 17 that when love is perfected within us, we have confidence before God on the day of judgment. And God knows everything, much more than the NSA or Mark Zuckerberg. Everything that we sang about earlier and thought about is true, that all our ways are known to God, every single one of them. But when love is perfected, we can still have confidence before him. Everything that we thought about through 1 John up until this point. Jesus, God the Son, has brought us near to God the Father. He has sealed us by God the Spirit that he might perfect love in our hearts. Now this word perfected is a tricky word. This is not like moral perfection as we might think of it. John is clear that that's not what he's after. Clearly, our our obedience could never make us safe before a holy God. This is why he speaks of us needing to have an advocate in Jesus who is our propitiation, who is our sacrifice, our atonement, our righteousness. It is only because of him that we are safe. But here is what it means. When we abide in love, love is perfected in us. When we are filled with God's love, love is overflowing. It means that love has reached and accomplished its goal. The perfection of love, this overflow, of the fullness of God gives us confidence in the day of judgment. This perfection leads to confidence because it confirms that we are, if not perfectly like Jesus, none of us ever will. We are being made more and more like Jesus. These are the things that we've already seen in 1 John. In 1 John 3, starting in verse 16, "...by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers." But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We're in 1 John 2, verses 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. And not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. When we love like this, it shows that we are like Jesus. And this freedom from judgment frees us to love all the more. Love for one another is bound up with our freedom from the penalty of sin. And yet oftentimes our guilt gets in the way of love. If we expect the judgment of God in our life, it is because we are preoccupied with ourselves. It is because we have not fixed our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Or we can justify ourselves or even love people for ourselves. But the opposite of all that is true as well. Oftentimes, we can shrivel in on ourselves because of guilt. There is sin in our lives, unconfessed. There is sin in our lives, not being crucified and put to death in our lives, being shared with each other and living in the light. Guilt is real, and yet Jesus has come to rescue you from it to transform you out of it, that you might live in the light. And so if you are already in Christ, chapter one, live in the light as he is in the light. Exactly what Matt said a few minutes ago. While the fear of the Lord, the right respect, the right reverence for the one God whom no one has ever seen, that does not go away. Nor should it. In fact, we should seek to grow in our fear of the Lord. In our, as Matt said, in our trembling in worship, our trembling in the love of God. We Christians should grow in our fear of the Lord, but we Christians should not be afraid of the Lord. Instead, moving more and more by the Spirit through the Son toward the Father into the very life of the triune God. That's the whole rest of eternity for us. The road on which we walk. Full and free in life and in the light. In love in abundant joy. And it's out of this relationship in God that we relate in a new way to others. And so verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so, if we are created in God's image, we humans, we humans, To represent and to display his power and his character, Calvin says this, it is a false boast when anyone says that he loves God but neglects his image which is before him. Does that make sense? If you say, yes, I love God, but then one of God's image bearers stands right in front of you and you do not love him, well, you do not love God. We can try to justify a thousand ways in our hearts and minds why that's not true, why we can and we are justified if you only knew the history and the story why I shouldn't need to love this person. John says, no, 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 no. This person is an image bearer that reflects God's God's glory. If we say we love the God behind this person, then we must love this person on the way to our love for God. Meaning not generally, we cannot say, yes, I love people. Yes, I love the church. But then when difficult people in your GC are on your nerves, you choose, no, nah, I'm, no, nah, no. Nah. I'll let somebody else deal with that. No, that is not love. You actually do not have love. If you do not have love particularly and individually, then you do not have love generally. You just have love generally or theoretically. This is why... We have a covenant of fellowship that we take so seriously, and we invite new members in as we'll do tonight, that we make these promises to each other three times a year, that we will not just love one another theoretically, but specifically, carefully, thoughtfully, and ongoingly. In fact, love is just as much a test of the authenticity of our faith as our obedience Love is just as much a test of the authenticity of our faith as righteousness, as holiness. Love is righteousness. Love is holiness, which is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing so you write a few books of theology, so you've memorized so many books of the Bible, so that you are now teaching one of our core classes or leading one of our GCs, but you do not love, then what's it all for? Who cares? If I give away all that I have, Paul says, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. God is love. He is love. He has loved. He is loving you now. He will love you forever. And so like we've considered, He will not stop loving us because He never began. If that is true for us Christians, if He never began loving us from eternity past, then He will never begin or ever end in His love for us, then let's just swim in it. Let's swim in it for the rest of eternity together with both feet, with clothes on, jumping in the river all the way under, just enjoying, relishing, loving the love of God. It is God's love that will change your loves, that will reorder, will reshape your loves, your desires, change your appetites. Willpower will not do that. Positive thinking will not do that. The love of God for you In the person of Jesus Christ, sealed by his spirit, will change your life. But in a Philippians 3.12 kind of way, not that I have already obtained this or am already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I want to know the love of God so much because he has loved me. I want to make Jesus my own because he has made me his own. That will change your life. But it doesn't just zap you. You don't take a pill that gives you the love of God. We swim actively. We read, we pray, we confess, we share. We live life with one another in the very love of God from now until he returns and into eternity together. Let's ask that he would help us. We can't do this on our own we need his help so let's ask him now and ongoingly our father we are thankful we are so thankful for your love for us you did not have to save us we are a world of darkness each one of us your enemies and yet you have come to save you have come to redeem you have come to adopt you have come to love father for those in this room who have not come to know this love who have not come to know the freedom from guilt the transformation by your spirit that comes in the gospel, we pray that you might be impressing on their hearts an uneasiness that might never be settled until they find rest in Jesus. God, for the rest of us who have come to know this love, change us, please. Transform us, help us. Spirit, walk with us that we might walk with you. Help us to make you, Lord Jesus, our own because you have made us your own we pray that you would do this for your glory, that the light of Christ might be clear and shown to the people in Albuquerque and beyond. And we pray that you would do this for our own joy, for our own transformation, for our own abundant life that is to be found in you. we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.